privilege to have with us this morning uh, as our guest, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Layton. Uh, Chris is the executive director of the Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies, which is uh, the newest uh, ministry that New Hope is supporting. And uh, we're thrilled that he's able to be with us here to uh, give us a view from the fraternity, and we'll explain that in a moment. But first, Chris, why don't you uh, tell us about uh, what a nice Presbyterian boy like you is doing in a place like the ICJS? Um, well, before I do that, Jason, I want to thank you and thank this church, this community, for supporting a venture that is daring and groundbreaking. And uh, as some of you know, um, liberal Presbyterians can sometimes be so open-minded, as E.E. E. Cummins said, that all their brains fall out. And all of uh, um, the encounters with Jason, um, or almost all, have, have, <laughs> have, have been enormously important to us in making sure that we learn something truly about sacred arguing, arguing that doesn't yield winners and losers, but arguing that helps us clarify and sharpen and better understand and see the world from different vantage points. And Jason um, has been invaluable in opening our eyes to other perspectives and making sure that we are rigorous and honest in laying claim to what is best within our respective traditions. So Jason, to you in this community, I, I first of all want to um, express my deep gratitude to you. Um, so what leads a Presbyterian to become involved with an organization like the Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies? Um, it's been a, a winding odyssey that led me to this organization. And in large measure, um, it emerged um, from the encounter with a history that I knew nothing about being educated and enculturated in a Presbyterian world that had little exposure to the Jewish tradition. And the shock was the discovery that um, for the better part of 2,000 years, um, Christians have often made it a habit of building their own affirmations on the negation of Judaism. And in this world where our religious traditions oftentimes lift up messages and insights and wisdom, and sometimes not so pleasant manifestations of loyalty. Um, the question is, can we learn to sing a contrapuntal um, song, where the beauty of our respective tradition makes a more resonant sound and a more harmonious um, experience? Um, because too often times our religious traditions have, in, have, have created enormous noise so the Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies has been um, all about learning how to sing a new song, um, a song that, that enables Jews to be better Jews and Christians to be better um, Christians and for us to, to really learn how we can interact in creative and constructive ways that really do give glory to God and, and build up and repair a very fractured world. And so how did you personally get involved with Um, I had been the chaplain of a school in North Baltimore called the Gilman School. And the first year um, that I was at Gilman, um, I had the experience of, of 
choreographing a program on the Holocaust, or the Shoah, as it's frequently referred to in the Jewish tradition. And I was just, I, you know, I, I was so anchored in my own Presbyterian tradition and, and so firmly, happily ensconced um, that when I looked into the abyss that is the Holocaust, I, I, I asked myself um, the question, how is it that in Europe, where there was the best and most stellar academic achievements, where learning was prized and cherished and culture was so deep and rich and Beethoven and Bach and, 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 and great literature and, and, and philosophy and theology, um, how could schools turn out technically competent barbarians? How can the best academies generate people who have no real sense of what it means to live an ethical, God-directed life? So there was a crisis, a credibility crisis of schooling that made me ask myself, to what degree do our schools replicate the pathologies of Weimar um, Germany. So that was one uh, key credibility crisis that came into uh, focus. The other credibility crisis was that the, the, the machines of destruction were lubricated by baptized Christians. And how could a tradition that proclaims um, love be twisted and put in the service of hate? And I became convinced that the only way um, to confront this was to break out of my own insular world. And so I started to study at the Baltimore Hebrew University, which I did for about eight or nine years. And then I went to New York and was working on um, a doctorate at Columbia and studying at, at um, the Jewish Theological Seminary. So I'm, I was sort of the token goy. Um, and had a chance to sort of learn something and, and was forming um, deep and, and indeed some of the most precious friendships with my rabbinic colleagues. So um, in large measure, it was an attempt to come to terms with those two credibility crises and to overcome my own insularity, my own parochialism um, that, that led me to, to immerse myself in this other tradition and the Institute was just coming into being around the time I'm um, pursuing these initiatives. And lo and behold, um, th they were willing to take a risk. And at this juncture, um, we didn't have any children, so we figured, what the heck, let's go for it. We knew there were, um, at, at the time, we thought we were going to go out of business. But it turns out there's tremendous job security in disarming religious hate because there's so much of it out there. <laughs> So what, what are the things that uh, the Institute does to disarm religious hate? Um, we do all kinds of things. But I think that the most important um, work that we do would really resonate with this community. We try to form a reading community, a reading community that engages our sacred texts. And we try to see and understand how our sacred texts 
can be read and interpreted in different ways. How our sacred um, texts and all their beauty can sometimes be misshapen and directed in insidious directions. And we try to recognize that, you know what, we can learn from people with whom we disagree. So we try to build muscles and reflexes that allow us to encounter, um, open ourselves to conflicting points of view, and to feel that challenge and to discover that the people with whom we don't necessarily agree can become very important, indeed, essential teachers. And good friends as well. And good friends. Yeah. Well, uh, the name of one of the wireless networks at ICJS is Romans 11. Was that you, or was that an inspired choice on the part of your IT staff? Well, Romans 9 through 11, of course, has um, been used by the Roman Catholic Church and certain um, other churches as well to try to build a new foundation upon which to reframe Christian-Jewish um, relations. And in large part, the key text there is that the gifts of God are irrevocable. So if God is a God that is faithful, God is not going to abandon the covenantal commitments made to the Jewish people. And so this text um, is frequently um, used to anchor a whole new understanding of how Christians and Jews can interact with each other. Now this is revolutionary, as you know, because if you look at the history of interpreting Paul, you see a whole range. It's a little bit like, remember that um, TV show, um, To Tell the Truth, where somebody would say, um, I'm Paul of Tarsus. And then somebody else would stand up and say, no, I'm Paul of Tarsus. And then somebody else would say, no, I'm Paul of Tarsus. And then, the, and then there would be a set of time. questions to clarify to see if, <laughs> if, if people could actually identify who the real um, Paul of Tarsus might have been. Well, the, the, the fact is that, that Paul has been understood and interpreted in so many different ways that the question is, well, who's the real Paul of Tarsus. And um, Marcion, who, as, as uh, you may know historically, was a character um, who argued that Christianity was about overcoming and leaving behind this fossilized religion, a god of wrath, a god of hate, that's the creator god who sticks us in this material world, and that Christ allows us to embark on a spiritual journey to the true god, that's set in opposition to the God of Israel. So when Marcion is creating his canon and utilizing um, the sacred texts that are going to define this new path, he draws upon and has Paul as a key figure. So historically, there are many people that see, and, and they're Jewish interpreters, that see Paul as the principal architect of Christian anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism. Um, I think that's a, 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 an outrageous um, um, spin or approach to Paul, and frankly, the church thinks it's that as well because it deems Marcion a heretic. But in large measure, Paul's a controversial figure who many um, Jewish interpreters said, Paul, not Jesus, is the real founder of Christianity. 
and they lay claim, these interpreters, Jewish interpreters, have laid claim to Jesus as one of their own, and said the real problem and the reason that there's such friction between Jews and Christians is to be laid at the footsteps of Paul. So that whole view is now, of course, being overturned, and indeed there are many contemporary um, Jewish and Christian scholars that are insisting upon this essential Jewishness of Paul and trying to use that as a way of understanding him anew. Well, flesh out a little more for us this fraternal uh, understanding, this two-covenant understanding of uh, uh, Judaism and Christianity and, and how you get that out of, uh, or in opposition to, Romans 9 and 11. Um, I'm not sure I really... Um, am a proponent of this two-covenant theory or one-covenant theory. Frankly, um, I, I find much of the debates around this to be arcane and not altogether coherent. Um, but it, it, it goes something like this. Does Paul believe that all Jews, in order to be in right relationship with God, have to become followers of Jesus and recognize that Jesus is the revelation that binds true relationship to God. So, in other words, is it necessary for Jews to eventually convert and become Christians. So there has been a a very prominent stream of Christian thought, the dominant stream of Christian thought, that for centuries has argued that the only way of being in right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. So um, this leads to a notion of there is one covenant, And that covenant is established in Jesus Christ, and Jews have to somehow be won over to that theological insight. A two-covenant theory says, you know what? Paul makes it explicit over and over again that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. And his mission was not to try to convert Jews, but his mission was a mission of inclusion to connect Gentiles to the God of Israel. And therefore, um, Paul recognizes that there are, um, if you will, a two-track system. There are those who are going to follow Torah as the way to live in right relationship and learn to, to walk in covenantal relationship with God, and that there are Gentiles who can become connected, can be grafted onto the tree of salvation um, by following in the footsteps of Jesus. And so these two tracks, if you will, these two paths um, bind, can be bound together in ways that are complementary and not in ways that require the overcoming or the negation or the supersession of one at the expense of the other. So let me understand then how you would read a couple of uh, key verses, and I'll, I'll throw the same ones at you that I threw at A.J. Levine back in November. Uh, incidentally, I, I can thank uh, 
Chris, for one, for just kind of getting me involved in uh, in this uh, Jewish Christian dialogue as I have. But uh, it was a, it was ten years ago this month that uh, Chris and AJ and I were all together on Mark Steiner's show talking about that uh, Mel Gibson movie. So uh, uh, some of us look as young as we ever did uh, ten years ago. But uh, so here we go, Romans nine. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, not all who are of Israel are Israel. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended of Israel or out of Israel, not all who are of Israel are Israel. How would you read that? Um... I think Paul is enlarging or expanding the category of who is Israel in a way that turns upside down the understanding that was prevalent in the Jewish tradition. Namely, he is welcome into the family of Israel, a group of Gentiles. And therefore, the surprise or the shock is that there is room, this is an inclusive message, um, for Gentile followers of the God of Israel. Is it also an exclusive message? Um, If it's read against the backdrop of the larger Hellenistic world, I think so. in other words, I think that, that there is a message that while there may be wisdom within the Hellenistic culture, that ultimately the road to salvation, the road to being a true community, the, the road to being ecclesia, to being a family of, of God, um, has to bind one to the God of Israel. So th- those who are... He- heathen or those who are um, following after other paths um, are going to have to undergo a a dramatic shift in order to truly understand what it means to be in right relationship. How about uh, 10.4? Chapter 10, verse 4. Messiah is the culmination of Torah so that there may be righteousness for everyone. Um, the, 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 a key word here where it says, for Christ is the end of the law. For the better part of Christian history, the end has, has been understood as the law, the Torah, has reached an end and become obsolete with the arrival of Christ. But in Increasingly, a number of scholars that suggest that the key word for end, in Greek meaning telos, is a goal that Christ, um, in a sense, embodies a way of being faithful to God that models and can be exemplary for both Jew and Christian alike in terms of understanding. Now, that's anachronistic already, as you know, because at the time Paul's writing, to divide the world up into Christian and Jew is already a distortion. 
there weren't Christians and Jews. There were, there were followers um, and people trying to be in covenantal relationship with the God of Israel. So in many respects, it's even a mistake to talk about um, Christians as though they were some utterly discrete group disconnected to the Jewish family. Well, and, and they started out as fully participating in the life of the Jewish community, but saying that Jesus was, in fact, Messiah and needed to be treated that way. The, the odd thing that happened, and Paul had a lot to do with this, was that you now suddenly had all these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles coming in right. and saying that they also wanted to, uh, wanted to follow Jesus. Right. And the, in, interestingly enough, um, the, the, the newer versions of Pauline interpretation have been saying that Paul did not set himself in opposition to his Jewish um, family. <laughs> his primary opponents were people who were coming to the Gentiles and said, you know what? In order to be in right, right relationship with God, you have to undergo a conversion that will make you full-fledged members of the Jewish community, which means circumcision, observance of, of dietary regulations, the whole nine yards. You can't be a follower of the Jewish Jesus without also being Jewish. And Paul is arguing, not so. One can be in right relationship with God, the God of Israel, um, through following and walking in the path of Christ. And that does not require the same um, um, kinds of practices, the same disciplines that define the G traditional Jews. Right. Well, I want to allow uh, time for a question or two uh, before we move on. Uh, so who has a question for uh, Chris Lee? Yeah, Kevin. Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still struggling. I, I, I just can't get clarity on this. And by the way, I don't think Paul really gets clarity. I think Paul really agonizes. He's in anguish about um, what is the fate of Jews who simply don't recognize Jesus as a legitimate way of being in relationship to the God of Israel. And there are clearly um, Jews that reject Jesus because, in large measure, he didn't meet the messianic job description that has, was in circulation at that time, didn't put an end to world suffering, did not gather Jews from all over the world, did not bring about um, a, a global political harmony. The, 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 the expectations about what a Messiah would do here and now in the Jewish tradition, just didn't seem to fit the character of Jesus. So a number of Jews um, said, thank you very much. Um, if he's the Messiah, fine, we'll wait and see. You say he's coming back. But, but um, of course, others said, no, there's something here that needs to be embraced. And so you have a, a, a divide. Um, but the overwhelming majority of Jews said that this is not um, a path to which we are called. So um, 
Paul, I think, really agonizes about what is the fate of those who reject Jesus. And um, he goes back and forth, on the one hand, wringing his hands and, and fearing for what may befall them, but I think ends up insisting that all of Israel will be saved. But he doesn't know how that's going to happen. And in many respects, he feels as though Jews who have not accepted Jesus have made a very serious blunder. And that this mistake could be a very costly mistake. So Paul goes back and forth and is deeply divided in his heart and his mind. And at the end of the day, I think, says, this is a mystery beyond our comprehension. It's frankly in God's hands, and God will work it out. But at the end of the day, will there be a harmonic conversion in which we all more or less sing the same song? I don't know. In many respects, I hope not. I hope that we will continue to be anchored in the particularity and the revelations and the ways in which God has connected and revealed God's self to, to these different folks. And I hope that there will be a way in which we can um, join together to build up that kingdom collaboratively and in partnership. And so this raises um, ultimately um, an intriguing question. What, what happens if Jason and can do a, a, a really exquisite exegetical job and arrive at the conclusion that you know what? Paul really does believe that Jews will have to undergo a conversion and become aligned with Jesus Christ in order to be in right relationship with God. That's truly, as Jason proves through his exegetical acumen, the case. For me, that raises um, a really intriguing question. What if Paul's wrong? I mean, can our scriptures at, at various junctures be wrong and remain authoritative and binding? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You see, you see, I, I, I think I, I want to agree, by the way, with Jason and argue that the scriptures really are, are binding and authoritative um, way of, of connecting, understanding, and relating to God and building community. But I do want to argue that there are ways of interpreting the scripture that can be very dangerous and very distorting. So I want to do my best to rein in interpretations that can breed contempt for others. And um, I think that a good way of doing that is through the encounter with people who are going to have differing interpretations who humble us in enabling us to understand that our understanding is partial and limited. Well, I think that's a good place for us to, uh, to end this part. Uh, let's uh, express our thanks to Chris. Thank you. Not, uh,
not only for joining us this morning, but for all that he and uh, his colleagues at ICJS do to facilitate these kinds of conversations and encounters. Uh, we want to, uh, Chris, as a thank you, give you a couple of things here. The first is a, a memoir by a woman named Hannah Miley. Uh, we have been supporting Hannah and her husband, uh, uh, George, for uh, several years now at New Hope. Um, she is a Holocaust survivor and has been active in reconciliation work in her uh, native uh, area of Germany in these latter days of her life. And uh, she's just published her memoir and want to give you that. We also want to give you a, a bottle of the wine we have at Communion, which we're about to do. This is Clos de la Vieille Eglise, which means Field of the Old Church, and in our case, it's a cemetery. So we figure that's suitable. <laughs> but uh, we thank you for being here with us. And uh, Chris is actually going to join me in serving communion. We'll stand in a moment to uh, recite the creed together, and then I'll invite you to come forward and take the elements. Please bring them back to your seat, uh, and then we'll partake of them together. The red is wine, the white is grape juice, and the bread is unleavened. 